I hope you've had a good week. Did you guys have a good week? Maybe? Some of us are a bit hesitant. There's only one week left of school. All the teachers are happy. All the parents are a little concerned. I'm in that unique possibility. That, that unique position where I'm kind of happy that I've only got a week left with all the students, but then I've also got two weeks with my own kids. I don't feel like I get a break. I'm not quite sure how that works. So Craig came to me on Sunday last week, and he said, um, I need you to preach for me on the Sunday when I'm in Fiji because the person who's supposed to do it, they can't do it now. He says, so, so you're up, you know, batter up. You're going to have to do it. And I was like, oh, okay, yep, that's fine. That's cool. I, I can do that. That's not a problem. And then 24 hours later on Monday, I came to him Monday night and I said, actually, I, I need to speak this Sunday as well. Now, you've got to understand that I, w- I don't do that normally. Like, I don't ever come to Craig and say, I need to speak. Like, that's just not how I work. And so he's like, oh, but I, but I still need someone to do this Sunday when I'm here. I've said, yep, that's fine. I can still do the Sunday you're not here. The reason why I have to speak this Sunday is because what I have to speak about when you're in Fiji I said, I need to make sure that there's a platform that's been laid. I am a teacher. I am not a preacher, okay? So for me to be able to, to speak, I need to make sure that you have an understanding about what I'm going to talk about. So today's message is actually all about laying a platform and making sure you understand some principles so that I can preach my message next week. Does that make sense? Yeah. Excellent. All right. So what this means, though, is I'm going to jump around a lot. There's going to be a lot of information, and I apologize for that up front, okay? Um, and I'm going to cover a, a period of history that's going to go through about six books of the Bible. We're going to go through, you know, some, some of Chronicles and Kings and Samuel. And, but because it's such a massive amount to cover, I'm, I will actually just kind of paraphrase it, all right? Because there's, there's just too much. And, Craig, you know, we've, only, we've got a short time. We're not going to be here for two hours, so I can't do a massive thing. But what I will do is periodically I'll just pull out a scripture. But, but I promise you it's sound. But, you know, the Bible also says that you need to go home and check these things out for yourself. So you're going to get a lot of reading if you want to do that. All right. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. All right. So you're all pre-warned that there's going to be a lot of info. I'll try to make it a bit more fun if I can. All right. So is it up? So please excuse the copyright law. I probably broke by doing that. (laughs) Okay. So turn with me to Matthew 8, verse 5 to 13. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have found not such great faith in all of Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that same hour. 
This scripture is quite often used and talked about as having great faith. And, it, and it's, it's always talked about as being a scripture of faith and how this great, amazing guy who was not a believer had this great faith in a God that he had only just heard about. This scripture is actually about authority. The scripture is actually about how authority works. It says in verse 9, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. The first principle that we must understand about authority is that it is not a commodity which we possess. It is not a commodity. It is not something that we possess. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Jesus. Authority is not a commodity. It's not something we possess. Authority is a flow. You see, and Jesus has all authority. So if Jesus has all authority, that means that I have no authority. That means that Satan, the enemy, the devil, whatever you call him, he has no authority because Jesus has all authority. And when we are under authority, it begins to flow. It flows from Jesus through me and into my situation. Think of authority like water. Think of yourself as a pipe and the water flows through the pipe and the authority comes from the source, Jesus, and it flows through me, the pipe, and into my situation. Does that make sense? Excellent. James 4 verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word submit means to place under. Now I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a situation where you have resisted the devil and he stayed? Have you ever experienced that, where you've been resisting the devil and he did not flee? Am I the only one who experienced it? You guys are just all amazing and, and you resist the devil and he just takes off? Are you guys like that scary? When we submit ourselves to God, we are placing ourselves under God's authority. The problem we have with is that most of us just resist the devil and we miss the first part of the scripture, which is submit yourself to God. You have to submit yourself to God so that the, God, the authority of God flows through you because you are now under his authority. Because the devil is not afraid of you, the devil is afraid of the authority of God. See, when you come face to face with the devil, it's not you he's afraid of. It's the authority of God that flows through. Does that make sense? You see, a person can be saved but not submitted to God. You have to be submitted to God to be able to resist the devil. That's, that's a given. You cannot be resisting the devil if you are not submitted. In Acts 19 verse 13, some itinerant Jewish exorcists who happened to be in the town at the time tried their hand at what they assumed to be Paul's game. They pronounced the name of the Master Jesus over victims of evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus preached by Paul. The seven sons of a certain Siva, a Jewish high priest, were trying to do this on a man when an evil spirit talked back. I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? Then the possessed man went berserk and jumped the exorcists, beat them up, and tore off their clothes. Naked and bloody, they got away as best they could. I love that. I know it sounds terrible, but I love that. I love the fact that, they, that this, this demonic spirit went, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the hell are you? And then proceeded to beat them up. Do you know why? Because they were not submitted to God. 
Now, I've heard other preachers say that this is because they were not saved. This is not true. People who are not saved do not go around performing exorcisms. These men were saved, they believed, but they were not submitted. The second principle that you have to understand about authority is that your authority is, is sorry, that is that your authority is using any spiritual weapon is determined by your submission to that weapon. So if you want to be able to use a weapon, you must be submitted. If you are not submitted, you have no authority and no right to be using that weapon. You're just going to get beaten up by somebody. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, But seek the first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. This whole year, I've had a theme running through my personal prayer time. No matter what the needs are that I've been facing or trying to deal with, I've had this one theme, and I didn't know why up until I started working on this message as to why I'm constantly praying this one thing. And what I keep praying about is the kingdom of God. I keep praying about, you know, God, let your kingdom come. Let it come and be established in my life. Let your kingdom be established in my home. Let your kingdom be established in my church. God, and it's just been constant. There have been times when the prayers for that specific thing have been so emotional and and far more so than some of the other things that I've been facing. And the reason is because this is vitally important. We need the kingdom of God. A kingdom is any place where the king's authority is obeyed without hesitation and without, uh, sorry, is obeyed without question and without hesitation. Simply stated, it means that in a kingdom, only one person votes. And that person is the king. So in a kingdom, in our kingdom, in God's kingdom, God has the only vote. He is the only person voting. Because he is the king. If you want to know in any kingdom who, who the king is, you look to see who's voting. That is the person who runs the kingdom. And in the, for us, we quite often think of that there's actually only two kings in our world. We think of uh, one king as being God and the other king as being Satan or the enemy or whatever you want to call him. But there is actually a third king. And his name is Self. In fact, self, self is a pretty bossy king. And how do I know that self is king? Because he votes. And only votes king. Uh, and only um, kings vote. In a kingdom, one person votes, it's the king. So if self is voting, he's king. Yeah? So how do I know that? Uh, when does he vote? When does self vote? Only on a constant basis. Only every time self is awake, he voices his opinion. He says what he wants. So why does self vote so much? Do you know why he votes so much? Because of every single opinion I've ever heard, mine is my favorite. I can hear multiple different opinions about different things, but I'll tell you what, I like mine the best. I'm just being honest. So how, how does self vote? Do you know how self votes? Let's take forgiveness. Now, God has voted for forgiveness, right? God's for forgiveness. 
and you come along to God and you say, well, actually, God, I understand that forgiveness is a cut and dried matter. And I do believe that in most situations, that yes, we should be forgiving people. But you need to understand that in my specific circumstance, there is, is just this whole big drama that really should facilitate me being allowed to have a period of bitterness before I even entertain how am I going to forgive this person. Do you know what that is? That's you voting. You see, because God's just voted for forgiveness and you've just said, no, I'm not doing that. So who's now king? Oh, that would be self. And it always feels kind of wonderful. Being honest, and if you're honest with yourself, it always feels kind of good to be king. It always feels quite good to have your opinion being the ruling one. And it's always really good when you decide things and that's what's going to happen. The problem comes when you realize that a king in a kingdom is responsible for two things. He's responsible for protection and he's responsible for provision. You need to be able to, as king, protect your whole kingdom. You also need to be able to provide for your whole kingdom. I'll explain to you how this works. Say we have a guy, Bob. Wait, is there any Bobs? Do we have a Bob in our church? No, okay, so we're going to use Bob. Okay, cool. So Bob is in church, and he's saved, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's married, and him and his wife, they're serving, you know, they they on the hosting team and they serve in kids zone and they're just absolutely in love with God and everything's awesome and his whole life is wonderful. And then one Sunday, the preacher begins to speak about tithing. And then on the way home, Bob in the car begins to manifest about it. How dare that preacher tell me I have to give 10% of my income. I don't know who he thinks he is. What does he mean that I have to give? I will decide what happens with my money. What's he just done? He's just voted. So what does that mean? He's now in charge of his finances. But Trent, isn't it true that tithing isn't taught in the New Testament? Well, if we rip out two of the Gospels, and if we rip out the book of Hebrews, then yes, you're correct, it's not taught in the New Testament. And it does leave you with 63 books and the concordance in the map. So you're all good. If you're not familiar with the principle of tithing, I suddenly thought I should mention this. If you're not familiar with the principle of tithing, tithing in the Bible says that you must give 10% of everything that comes into your hand belongs to God. Most people who are upset with tithing are the type of people who want to negotiate that figure. So they don't want to give God 10%. They might come to God and go, actually, I'm just going to give you 5%. And then God's like, 10%. And you're like, no, I'll give you 6%. And God's like, 10%. Fine, we'll split the difference. We'll make it 7.5%, God. That's how much I'm going to give you. And we expect God to be happy with this. We, if you think about it like this, if you went to your boss and you said to your boss, I know I'm supposed to start work at 9 a.m., but how late can I be and not get into trouble? Yeah? Or I know I only have five sick days, but how many days off can I have and still get paid? You're not going to want someone like that working for you. You're not going to be happy that you've got someone like that employed by you. See, somehow we seem to think that it's okay for us to negotiate with God. I need to explain something to you very, very clearly. If you are only tithing 9.9%, you voted because God said 10%. Anything less than what God said. Remember, a king in charge of his kingdom gets obeyed without question and without hesitation. But Trent, tithing was under the law. No, tithing began with Abraham, which was 500 years before the law. Ah. 
But, you know, now we're under grace. Yes, we are. And therefore, we need to do twice as much, so you should be tithing 20%. You might want to just stick to what God said. The tithe belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to some guest speaker. It doesn't belong to some other ministry. It doesn't belong to your cousin, John, who lost his his um, job. The tithe belongs to the church. Why? Because that's what God voted for. You know? Now, I didn't actually mean to upset everybody by talking about tithing, but it's the best thing that happens. So what happens with Bob is that he's, he's refusing to tithe. So that means he's in charge of his own finances. He's now got to protect and provide in the area of his finances. So he's at church and he hears about spiritual warfare. He hears about binding and loosing and he thinks this is an amazing thing. And he says to his wife, let's form a connect group. Tuesday night, we'll get a bunch of our friends over and we'll do some binding and loosing and we'll do some warfare. What you have to remember about warfare is that it means both sides are fighting. It means that you shoot at them and they shoot back. Because if you were just shooting at them, that's called murder. And this is warfare. And when we're in warfare, it means the enemy's going to shoot back. Now, Bob's just decided we're going to do some warfare. So what happens is you need to make sure that you're wearing the whole armor of God before you go into warfare, yeah? Don't assume that because you're saved that you're wearing the armor of God. At no time did God ever say, congratulations, you're now wearing the armor of God when you get saved. He actually says that you have to put on the armor of God. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have to worry about that because every morning I get up and I say, I put on the helmet of salvation. I put on the breastplate of righteousness. I put on the, my uh, shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I have my sword of the spirit in one hand. I have the shield of faith in the other. So I am ready. Not if you're voting. How do you think you put on the armor of God? You do it by submitting. And if you haven't submitted... You haven't put on your armor. You see, when God is king of my thought life, when my thoughts are submitted to him, when it's his vote that counts in my thought life, what that means is that his authority flows through me and provides the helmet of salvation. When my emotions are submitted to God, when my relationships and my feelings are submitted to God, and I bring them into captivity and I say, I submit them under God, what happens is His authority flows through me and provides the breastplate of righteousness. How do you put on your armor? By submitting. How do you take your armor off? By voting. But, but I don't understand, Trent. What happens uh, every morning? I'm praying, God, I put on my helmet of salvation. I put on my breastplate of whiteness. What am I doing then? Have you ever heard of the emperor's new clothes? You're just standing there naked. You have to submit to put on the armor. So anyway, back to Bob, who's now doing warfare, but he's not submitted to God and his finances. So that means he has no protection over his finances. That means he has no weapon to fight in his finances. So what happens is, the Satan comes along and he starts to attack. And he attacks him in his finances. Bob realizes what's happening. He goes home and says to his wife, you know what, I'm going to fast and pray for the next three days. We're going to believe God for a miracle in our finances. And when that miracle happens, it's going to be amazing. And, you know, and he begins to pray. He should actually just eat. His fasting and his praying is actually going to do nothing. 
it is highly insulting to go to God and expect him to provide protection for an area that you are standing in rebellion in. God, I'm going to rebel against you here, but I still need you to protect it because I can't. You cannot be in rebellion and still expect God to protect you. To protect you. Does that, that make sense? You see, authority does you no good unless you use it. James 4, 7 is very clear. You have to submit to God before you can resist the devil. And if you are not submitted in that one area, you are not going to be able to resist the devil. And these principles you can apply to every single area of your life. You can provide, uh, do it for your, that strategy works for your um, habits, it works for your thoughts that you have, it works for your attitudes, it works for your desires. The principles are the same. The strategy is the same. You just need to make sure that whatever battle you're facing, that you are fully submitted to God. Ephesians 6 says, God gives us weapons for warfare, but I can't find anywhere where God describes weapons for himself. You see, God's glory actually defeats all of his enemies. And something that a lot of people don't realize is that God's glory, which is a part of him, a part of his manifest presence, a part of who he is, defeats all of his enemies. John 17 verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, we are told that when Jesus returns, he will destroy all his enemies. How is he going to destroy his enemies? Because you know what? The Bible doesn't talk about any weapons. It does talk about the brightness of his light. In fact, in Habakkuk 3 verse 3, it says, His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. The glory of God is the only enemy that God, is the only thing that God uses to defeat his defeat his enemies. In fact, the glory of God is so powerful that if there's a problem and God turns up, it's instantly resolved. He defeats everybody. When Moses was called by God to go up to Mount Sinai, the Bible says that the appearance of the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai was like a fire. It also goes on in that passage of scripture, and Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says to Moses, no man can see my glory and live. But Moses really wanted to see it. And God, like any loving father, said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You need to hide in this cleft of the, of the mountain. And I'm going to put my hand over you and cover you. And then as I go past, you will see the afterglow of my glory. And so that's what happened. It was the afterglow of the glory of God that Moses saw. didn't actually see the glory. He just saw the trailing glow that was left. The amazing thing is, is that by the time he got down from the mountain, his face shone so brightly that the people could not look upon him. He had to wear a veil so that people could actually look at him. The glory of God is so bright that it defeats all of his enemies. The glory of God is in his presence. He cannot separate from himself. The other thing that we need to understand is that the glory of God is our only source of victory. Now, I can hear you already going, um, what about the word of God? Well, if God's presence and his glory and his spirit wasn't upon the word of God, it would just be a book like any other. Oh, but the name of Jesus is, is, is the name above all names, and that's a source of victory. If God's presence wasn't there when his name is called, it would just be a name like any other name. 
It's the glory of God that defeats. It's the glory of God that is our source of victory. In Matthew 6, he taught us that the solution to all our problems in this world was contained in one thing, thy kingdom come. He is in his kingdom. His glory is in his kingdom. And the obvious need for his kingdom to be established anywhere in your life is where you need victory. So when you need victory, you need his kingdom to be established. Because in his kingdom is where God reigns. And in his kingdom, if God's reigning and God's there, that means that his glory's there. And his glory will defeat the problems you have. Does that make sense? Are you getting this? Because I feel like you're like really silent. You need to remember the definition of a kingdom. Remember, a kingdom is any place where the, gods, or where the king's authority is obeyed without question and without hesitation. You need to establish the kingdom of God in your life where he is obeyed without question and without hesitation because that's where he dwells, that's where his glory is. In Genesis 1-2 it says, God's spirit brought order out of chaos. His spirit, his glory brought order to the earth. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created in his glory. They were covered in his glory. And because God's glory dwelt upon the earth, there was no hurricanes, there were no tornadoes, there was no tsunamis, there was no death, there was no rape, there was no incest, there was no murder, there was no torture. There was nothing. Why? Because that was his kingdom, and he protects and he provides for his kingdom. After creating Adam, God actually made Adam king of the earth. He said to Adam, I will give you dominion over the earth. You can rule and reign over the earth so that the earth became Adam's kingdom. And then because Adam was in full submission to God, it became the kingdom of God. And God's glory sat upon the earth. And because God's glory remained on the earth, it defeated any of the enemies so that Adam and Eve were protected. Now, the obvious question then becomes, well, why did God let the, the, the Satan come into there in the form of a serpent? The thing you have to remember is that God actually created man for fellowship. Our number one primary role and purpose in our life is to fellowship with God. And because God is not a dictator, and because God did not want robots, he wanted us to love him of our free will. He wanted us to choose him above every other person and every other thing in our lives. He knew that he had to give Adam a choice. He couldn't just say, Adam, serve me, because Adam would then just be a robot, and he didn't want that. So he had to allow the Satan to come into to the kingdom to actually speak. He was not allowed to harm. If you notice, uh, Satan was not allowed to harm anybody. He was just allowed to communicate. And I think it's really funny that quite often we have this misunderstanding. We think that Satan is after souls. Satan wants to harm everything that God protects. Satan wants to harm the earth that he created, and he wants to harm man that he created. He wants to be able to destroy everything that God put together. But to do that, Satan had to get God's glory out of the way. The only way that he could get God's glory out is that he needed Adam to vote. He needed Adam to stop submitting himself to God. He needed the earth to stop being a part of the kingdom of God. And the enemy is subtle. We think that, that Satan rocks up to people and says, hey, shall I show you how to sin? That's actually not how he works. He's very careful and he's cunning. He was, he's actually a little bit wise. And he comes and he's, he's, he's not like, I'm going to start up a whole new religion. We're going to call it Satanism. And we're going to have pentagrams. And we're going to have, you know, goat's heads. And we're going to have, he doesn't do that. That would be far too silly. 
but he comes in quietly. And I think a lot of people think that it was just that one visit that Satan had. Do you really think he just turned up that one time that we read about? Do you think maybe he would just sometimes slither through the garden and say, oh, you're looking very lovely today, Eve, and keep going? Do you think maybe then a couple of days later he might come along and go, I just love the way you just arranged those flowers. That's, you're quite talented, and slide off again. Maybe a few days later, makes another comment here, flatters us, makes us feel like we're a little bit special. And then finally he comes and he says, you know, Eve, you are just so clever and the way you've just organized this, anyone would think that maybe you'd just organize the whole garden. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. And we start to buy into the things that he says. We start to buy into how maybe I'm better than I thought. Maybe I can do these things. And then eventually Satan comes and he says, you know what? Eve, I think maybe you could be king. Now, he doesn't actually say that. In Genesis 3, um, verse 5, he actually says, you could be like God. Same thing. He needed them to vote. He wanted them to have a promotion. He wants you to have a promotion. Will you make yourself king? When Adam and Eve voted, they suddenly felt naked. That's because they've been clothed with the glory of God. And there's two reasons why suddenly they were naked. Two reasons why the glory left. First of all, it was now no longer God's kingdom. They had voted. He was now no longer king. So God bowed out. He left. His glory departed. Not his kingdom. He cannot dwell there anymore. The second reason why God left, and this one speaks to the heart of who God is. God knew that his glory defeats his enemies. There was now sin in Adam and Eve. And he loved them so much that he knew that if he stayed... While he was in the process of destroying their sin, he would destroy them also. So he had to leave and love them from a distance. So God had to find a way to get back to being in that relationship, in that loving relationship. He didn't want to have a distance between us. So he came up with an idea. He had a, a way of healing this problem. And that's found in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. And we have Moses is building the Ark of the Covenant for the tabernacle. Now the Ark represents God's glory. And he says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Since God could not separate himself from his glory, he had to couple it with his mercy. The cherubims represented on the ark, they represented God's glory. And they sat above the mercy seat. What I think is awesome is that he didn't sit it above judgment seat, but above the mercy seat. And basically God said, where my glory meets my mercy, that's where I can meet with you. That's where I can spend time with you. That's where I can become intimate with you again. The only thing that protects sinful man is that from God's glory is God's mercy. Inside the ark was the law which had been broken by man. And sitting on top of it was a mercy seat. Now in order to look upon the law which, man, which had been broken by man, God actually had to look through mercy. Okay, that was actually really awesome. Yeah, so I'm going to go over here. 
When God looks upon the law, which has been broken by man, he now has to look through mercy. Are you getting this? When God looks at the law, which is broken by man, he looks through mercy. You have no idea how amazing this is. His glory is not able to destroy us anymore. Why? Because it has to look through mercy. And in amongst all of this, God had to create a whole new way of us being able to relate to him. And if you could go back to those days, if you could ask one of those Israelites, where will I find God? They're going to say to you, you go down this row of tents. You hang a right, go down that row. If you look to your left, you're going to see a giant tent, and that's the tabernacle. And if you go in through there, you, that's the outer court. He's not there, but you're getting warmer. Then you're going to walk through into the inner court. You're getting even warmer still. And then you're going to come to this, this curtain and this veil, and that's called the Holy of Holies. Do not go past the veil. Trust me, you do not want to go past the veil. But if you did go past the veil, what you would find is this golden box, and God's in the box, but don't go past the veil. Now what happened in that, in, with the whole Moses thing and the whole way that they worshipped was one day a year, called the Day of Atonement, a priest who had been sanctified was allowed to go in to make a sacrifice to redeem the people. But what would happen was he would have to have a rope tied around his ankle and he would have bowels sewn into the bottom of his garment so that they could hear it ringing all the time. And one, on that one day a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies. Problem is, is quite fairly regularly, they would die while they were in there because they had sin in their life. And sometimes even the priests who had sin in their lives would go through into the Holy of Holies, and because God's glory was there, it would kill them. Not on purpose, inadvertently, just because God's glory is sitting there, that's what happens when his enemies are in his presence. The reason why he had the, the rope tied around his ankle is so that they could drag the body out because no one could go in and get them. So if God's glory was coupled with his mercy, how come people still died? Well, that's because in those days they sprinkled it with the blood of a lamb. Thankfully, we live under the covenant where it was sprinkled with the blood of Jesus the perfect Lamb of God. He sprinkled his blood upon our hearts so that when we meet with him in, his, in front of the, where the glory and the mercy meets, we don't die. And as long as the Israelites had this ark in their possession, they won their battles. As long as they had him, they won everything. In fact, it didn't matter what battle they fought, they were winning. Now, how many of you know that when you are Winning everything, you can become a little presumptuous. You can assume that you know more than you do. You can assume that you're better than you actually are. Well, the Israelites were like that. They thought they had God in a box. Eventually, they started scrutinizing all of God's uh, management policies, and they began to vote in different areas of their life. And they began to claim back the kingdom from God, and they began to seek out different things and, and make themselves king. And eventually, they actually gave God the biggest insult of all, and they said to him, we actually want a man to rule over us. We want a man to be king. Can you imagine how insulting that was for God? He had never abused them. He had provided for them. He had protected them. But now they wanted somebody else. So God was like, okay, you can have somebody else. And he departed, which means his glory departed with him. And so they appointed for themselves a king. And his name is King Self. I mean King Saul. Same thing. Before Saul became king, just before they lost the ark, they lost the ark and they lost the glory. And when they lost it, they became very nervous. 
They'd gone into battle against the Philistines and they were like, we're losing. And they didn't know how to lose because they'd never lost before. So they were panicking. So like, let's go and get God. Okay, we're going to go in there. And they gathered up a whole bunch of men and they go marching through to the tent of the tabernacle. They go storming through the outer court into the inner court. They pull back the curtain. They grab the ark and they take off. And they broke 28 laws in the process while they did that. Yet they did not die. Why was that? Because God had already left. They had voted. Glory wasn't there anymore. What was interesting was on the battlefield, they lost. Completely lost. Philistines managed to grab the ark. So they took the ark of the covenant and they placed it in the city of Ashdod. And about now is when God turns back up inside the ark. They place it beside their false god, Dagon, and Dagon then, they, um, they, they walk away, they, they, they come back the next day, and their idol is fallen flat on his face. Then they go, well, this is weird, so they stand him back up. The next day they come back, and this time, not only is he flat on his face, but his hands and his head have been broken off. Then the city breaks out into plagues, and they think, this is terrible, what's going on? So they push the, the ark, and they send it to, um, they send it to, what did they send it to? Ashdod, Garth, they send it to Garth, sorry. So they send, the, send it to Garth, same thing happens, the whole city breaks out in tumors. Then they send it off to Ekron, and Ekron, they break out in tumors, and then they get smart, and they go, we don't want this, we're going to send it back to the Israelites. So they get a new cart, they get a couple of oxen, they load it up, and they just send it on its way. Now the people who were dwelling at Beth Shethem, they were really excited because they were Israelites, they see the ark coming, they're like, this is amazing. They start having this massive celebration, and everything is going all good. And it says in 1 Samuel verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, the people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord because they'd stopped harvesting and rejoiced at the sight of the ark. Problem is, they get curious, you know, don't we all? And they decide they're going to open the ark. Remembering, though, that the lid of the ark is the mercy seat. So they open the ark and all of a sudden they're confronted with the glory of God without the mercy and every single one of them is wiped out and they're killed instantly. Just like that. You see... What they did at that point is they took it to a man named Adinabab and they gave it to him. And what they said was, we're going to consecrate your son, Elazar. So they consecrate Elazar to be able to work with the ark. So he does that and he gets consecrated. It spends 20 years sitting in their house. And the whole time, Saul never once thought about bringing the ark back. But when self is king, we may go through the motions, but we don't really want to put God in his rightful place. We're kind of too comfortable being king ourselves. So they come to this point where God says to Saul, you have to destroy the Amalekites. In fact, you need to destroy everything that breathes. So if it breathes, it gets destroyed. Now this is really easy. You take a little mirror, if it puts it under their nose, if it fogs up, kill them. But Saul decides, I'm not going to kill the livestock, I'm going to keep that. So he keeps the livestock. Samuel, who's a prophet, comes along and he says, did you do what God said? Did you kill everything that breathed? in the city of the Amalekites. And Saul goes, oh, of course I did. And then, rather dramatically, you can hear the cattle mooing, and you can hear the sheep bleating. And then Samuel says to him, then why can I hear the, hear the cattle out here? Why can I hear the livestock? And then Saul, because he thinks very fast on his feet, and he's a, he's a very smooth kind of guy, and he says, oh, well, I was actually going to do this massive sacrifice which is actually a complete and utter lie. He wasn't going to do that at all. He was going to have a barbecue and his wife was at home making the potato salad. And Saul's next statement is a kingdom principle that we all need to understand. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. 
because sacrifice does not characterize a kingdom. Only one thing constitutes a kingdom, obedience. Because in a kingdom, the authority is obeyed without question, without hesitation. You know what? Fasting is a sacrifice. Tithing is obedience. Therefore, tithing is better than sacrifice. Eventually, Israel managed to get a king after God's own heart, and David. And in David's official statement as king in First Chronicles 13, he says, Let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for inquired of it not at all in the days of Saul. It further goes on to say in Psalms 132, David vowed that he would not rest until he had found a dwelling place for God. We had two kings, Saul and David. David was confronted with his sin, and he readily admitted to it. He fell on his face, and he apologized. He said, I am that man. But when Saul was confronted with his sin, he denied his wrongful acts completely. We all have moments of failure. We all have moments when we vote, where we've rebelled against God's authority. The key for survival is to admit it, to apologize, to re-establish him um, as authority and move on. So they bring the ark home in 1 Corinthians 13. The story unfolds. David assembles the Israelites. He gathers them together. Now the ark's been away from home for 20 years. And they put the ark on a new ox, and they, uh, on a new cart, and they send it off the oxen, and people were really excited. Then they reached the threshing floor at Chidon. And the oxen stumbled, and a young man who was there helping them, Uzzah, he reaches out to stop the ark from falling. Unfortunately, what happens is, is that he gets killed instantly. Now, a lot of people struggle with this story until you understand something very interesting. Abinadab had two sons, Elazar, who was consecrated to work with the ark, and Uzzah, who wasn't. Uzzah's name means strength of man. And what we actually had happen, this is a representation of the strength of man thinking it can carry the glory of God. And that is why he unfortunately was, um, was killed. But the whole point of this is that we had David saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? And instead of taking the ark back to Jerusalem, they left it at the house of Obed-Edom, and it was remained there for three months, and his household was blessed. I believe that God is wanting again to establish his, his kingdom and his authority here on the earth. David instituted a new way of worship, which we, a pattern which we follow. But God wants us to do it more so. Jesus prayed the prayer that says, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants God's kingdom to be established on the earth. The mistake that we make quite often, particularly I see it coming through in the world at the moment, is that we seem to think that we have to fix this physical world. We have a lot of things like, you know, you can't do buy plastic bags anymore when you go shopping and all that sort of stuff. And we seem to think that these actions are going to restore the earth. The only thing that's going to restore the earth is for the earth to once again become the kingdom of God. Because if the earth becomes the kingdom of God, it's now under God's protection, and God will provide. Can I just have the musicians come up? I've got a whole lot more, but I'm actually really aware of the fact that the time is really getting away. Second Peter 1.13 says, Our body is a tabernacle. The actual tabernacle of David was a tent. It was portable, it was movable, it could be lifted up and taken. And isn't that what our bodies are like? Our bodies are portable and they're movable. Our bodies need to become the new tabernacle of God. 
In Joshua chapter 3, we find the nation of Israel at the banks of the Jordan River, and they're waiting to cross into the Promised Land. In verse 3, it says that the people were told, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, you shall then set out from your place and go after it. You will set out from your place and go after it. When people see the Ark, God's glory, they will remove from their place and go after it. What we need to ask ourselves, are people seeing the glory of God when they see us? When one alcoholic sees another alcoholic who's been set free, they won't, you don't have to beg them to come to church. They'll just come. When you see someone whose marriage was falling apart and then God gets a hold of them and suddenly it's not anymore, people don't need to be begged to come to church. They want to come because they will follow the glory of God. When a person is bound by a depression or an atheist or they're an agnostic, when they see the glory of God, they will go after it. We need to focus our attentions on seeing the restoration of God's glory. His kingdom come. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, for it, is the God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give light the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God and not of us, the face of Jesus Christ. God revealed his glory in Jesus' face. What was different about Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai? All over his face was the glory of God. In Acts chapter 7, there's a really interesting little passage, and it's when Stephen is being uh, martyred. And so Stephen's dying, and they're throwing stones at him. And while he's there, there's a young man named Saul. And Saul who would be what you would call an accessory to murder today. And he's watching them, and he's gathered up the cloaks of everybody else who's actually stoning Stephen to death. And he sees something on Stephen's face. He sees something that troubles him, and it troubles him for a while because he then becomes so zealous for destroying the church. He, he goes around looking for the people who follow the Jesus that Stephen preaches. And I believe that what he saw on Stephen's face was the glory of God, and eventually Saul gives up trying to run from the glory of God. And he falls on his knees and he actually converts and he becomes the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You see, when people see the glory of God, when they see it in your life, when they see the kingdom of God coming, they will run to it. God is restoring the tabernacle of David. And as you and I make him a part of our lives, Jesus' prayer about his kingdom come becomes the reality. Does that make sense? Why don't you stand to your feet? Let's pray. God, that your kingdom would come. God, that your kingdom would just establish selves in our lives. God, that your kingdom would establish itself in this church. God, that people would look upon us and they would see the glory of God and they would run after it. God, there would be a people who are so submitted to you that it's no longer I, but it's you. God, that you would just establish yourself, that the kingdom of God would return, that we would obey you without question, without hesitation. Father, reveal to us where we are unsubmitted.
Lord, if we have an area in our life, God, that we have not submitted to you, I pray that you would just highlight it for us in this moment.